0: This episode of Upstream Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com/energy. All right. Well, welcome everyone to this episode of Upstream in Perspective. I am David Boucher and I'm very happy to be here uh, returning as your host for the show. If you listened to us last year, you know that we went on a brief hiatus uh, but it's great to be back, and I hope that 2021 has started very well for all of you, wherever you are out there in the world. Now, uh, we have a special guest today because not only is it the first one of our return to the show, but also it's because this is my colleague in the upstream costs and technology team. So I work in IHS Markets um, costs and technology team, and usually I will have guests from outside of that. But today uh, we have someone that I work with on a, on a weekly basis. So his name is uh, Prashant Palai, also known as Prash and uh, I will let him give a little bit more detail on what he covers. But today we're going to talk about a very important topic that's facing upstream operators today, and hopefully we can get into a little bit more of that um, by looking at some of the research that Prash is doing. So Prash, would you mind just introducing yourself quickly and uh, what you do within the cost and technology team?
1: Absolutely. Thanks a lot, David. I appreciate the introduction. Um, hi, everyone listening. So my name is Prashant Pillay. I joined IHS at the start of 2018. My background is... Uh, sort of oil and gas, uh, upstream well services. So I specialised in hydraulic fracturing, uh, worked in Australia, uh, over in Queensland, and then I was uh, transferred to to Texas, uh, where I spent a few years blasting a lot of sand, <laughs> chemicals, downhole into wells. So basically what I do uh, within the cost technology group is I I work in the cost and expenditures uh, segment, where we basically track sort of all field uh, operational costs. I tend to focus more on how costs are being uh, impacted in the wells division. So covering various well services segments, and also covering well materials, tracking, you know, uh, pipe prices, problem materials. So yeah, that's just a little bit of an introduction on on what I do.
0: Yeah. And and also I should mention that beyond all of that research that I take part in as well, we also have time to kind of do some deep dives on specialized topics. And that's one of the ones we're going to look at today, uh, which is decarbonization. But I I will just say, I'll take a quick pause to, to mention for the audience that even though you can just hear the audio, we are talking to each other. So Prash and I can see each other on screen. Uh, from a distance, obviously. So he's out of the London office, and I'm here in France. And he he looks like he's ready to go fishing off the coast of Alaska. He's got this phenomenal <laughs> like fisherman look, the beard, the beanie, everything. So Prash, it must be it must be cold where uh where where you are?
1: Uh, yeah. So so uh, I'm I'm based in, in London. uh live in West London, and um, we got a got a decent amount of snow yesterday, which was uh, quite yeah. magical. So, but yeah, um, we are we are maintaining strict uh, physical distancing as per yeah. COVID protocols.
0: <laughs> you know, and I, I just thought, so I was thinking of how I started the episodes and, you know, small talk about the weather. It's kind of a safe thing, right? But I think in these times of COVID, it's almost a way to like transport yourself somewhere else. But at the same time, since it's cold where you are and it's cold where I am, I'll have to check and see if there's a Hawaiian office of IHS Market and we can ask <laughs> them what the weather's like next time. And then we can all take a mental trip. All right, so now on the topic of uh, today's show, decarbonization. Now we've heard a lot about Energy transition. Uh, we've heard a lot about oil and gas companies, operators, and service companies taking steps to explaining how do we get to where we are now. So, in your kind of estimation and and from the fact base that you've gathered, what do you think the progress has been for E&P's and service companies uh, over the last couple of decades? I mean, just generally speaking, but certainly over the last few years. I mean, what has the progress been in terms of uh, decarbonizing their operations and supply chains?
1: yeah, happy to get my perspective on that, David. I mean, to be quite blunt, I think the the oil, oil and gas upstream sector has been' it's been somewhat suffering from a bit of inertia um in terms of approaching decarbonisation, I think we've been living in a world that's been so dependent on hydrocarbon resources. And obviously, you know with the heightened climate change of issues that have arisen in the last two decades through you know well, almost thirty years, um, you're starting to see a bit more awakening in terms of okay, what what sort of impact are we having on our environment? What sort of effects are our actions and, and operations having on on that environment, which you know we're all we're all living in? So you, I would say the oil and gas industry has been a bit of a, a laggard laggard in sen- in the sense that you know if compared to other industries like like healthcare, automotive, that have really embraced digital technologies to enhance their production efficiencies, you haven't really, you've only really seen that kind of shift in the upstream sector maybe in the last 10, 10 years or so. So, I mean, the te- technological innovations that have resulted, I mean, have been quite remarkable in such a short span of time, you know, particularly in it optimised, you know, completion designs, you know, which is something that I'm very kind of passionate about and I've sort of spent my last few years of my career working on, you know, so. So now the ingredients for success in in this current economic climate for operators and service companies are, you know, shifting amid budget restrictions, and you know we're not talking about more is is better. It's it's more like what can we do with less, less resources to to optimize the assets that we already have amid sort of a reduced capex environment.
0: So no, so, sorry, sorry, so, so Those are all really important points. that I think just to kind of clarify something for the audience that I didn't really. I would say i didn't realize it but it didn't really kind of hit me until you and i did the prep for this session is that everyone kind of instinctually knows what decarbonization is it's let's take carbon out of the supply Mm. chain but what you're saying actually is that when you look at that tactically that takes a lot of forms that can take new digital technologies that make things more efficient. It can mean doing more with less in the face of something like COVID that requires you to slash your CapEx budget. So decarbonization is this sort of nebulous idea that can encompass a lot of different things, Absolutely. which hopefully we'll, we'll get a, a chance to, to, to touch on here. I think before we get to that, then, would it be fair to say that in your estimation, based on kind of what you've seen, oil and gas companies may be a little bit slower than other industries to adopt the goal, right? So, I mean, they've mm-hmm. obviously been working towards a lot of these digitalization efforts, efficiency efforts, but not necessarily with the goal of decarbonization in mind. But would you say that that has changed in the last couple of years, like with the discussions around energy transition and some of the sort of uh, demands, really, from the consumers of their products. I mean, is that fair to say that it's sort of accelerated in the last couple of years?
1: Absolutely, yeah, that, 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 that's an accurate assessment um, of the state of play at the moment. I mean, there's been a lot of sort of focus on, you know, these buzzwords, scope one emissions, scope two emissions, and and that's something that operators and service companies alike are adopting. Into their into their the language you know uh, when it comes to their ESG priorities. So just to sort of delineate, you know, scope one emissions or something you know, are, are the ones that are produced you know on site in the context of oil and gas, right? So if you have a well and you have a flare stack, you know, and, and you're emitting g- gases, then you know that's considered scope one. Um, and then scope two is you know emissions that are sort of indirect in the sense that you know you you purchase. Electricity, but obviously that electricity was generated from potentially burning fossil fuels. So this sort of paradigm shift in how they're viewing their emissions is is something that's really important in in, in terms of defining a strategy, right where do we need to target our emission reductions? you know people need to realize that this involves a lot of expenses. You know, trying to reduce reductions is something that is is not going to come free, and it's going to be incorporated in the cost of performing activities in, out in the oil field. But I, I think we have seen certain efforts being made. For example, if you take pressure pumping providers, you know, in the last few years, they've, they've adopted more stricter engine standards that develop more tier four uh, diesel engines to ensure that the emissions from these pumping tractors are not too toxic. Especially, you know, in places like in America and North America, where fracturing activities are mainly focused inland, and you know, you do have highly populated areas, you know, around a lot of oilfield, you know, uh, places like places like Texas, you know, places like in, in the Marcellus. Region as well, so you've seen huge shift in dual frac, frac fleets. You know where you're incorporating uh, natural gas and diesel to power the engines, and then you're also starting to see a, a sort of a surge in low noise fleets um, as well. But which, which, what we can sort of discuss a bit further along.
0: So, so that, that's a, gr- a great example. And I think before we go too far into the technology, you mentioned uh, the costs, co- costs mm-hmm. of doing this, right? Because certainly uh, this is another topic entirely, but if you look at EFRAX, it's, it is more expensive depending on how you're running in comparison. It is much more expensive than a conventional operation, right? Again, it kind of depends sure. on the assumptions you're making, but it's a more expensive technology. But what we talked about in the prep for this is that there are factors that are pushing service companies and operators to decarbonize so we can almost talk about the costs of not doing something right and so can you maybe talk about the costs in for example missing recruitment targets right because you know we talked about the great crew change that was the big dialogue perhaps a decade ago What about the green crew change of people, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. next generation of young professionals, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, What about, you know, we talk about access to capital. So, so can you maybe talk about some of the costs of not adopting these, these measures? So these are, these would kind of be, obviously the cost of not adopting is not decarbonizing, right? And energy transition and environmental concerns, all that goes along with that. But what about the other very immediate operational costs of not adopting some of these measures that sh- that you've mentioned and you're going to mention in the rest of the show?
1: You know, so, you know, operators in today's industry are are faced with a multitude of challenges, right? I mean, we've just sort of touched the surface. You know, they're not just about simply producing oil anymore. You know, maybe like 40 years ago, that that was their sole priority, right? But today, a whole host of other issues that need to be taken into consideration. You know, they've got to deal with sort of investor demands, a very volatile market, you know, situation we're in you know um labor issues like you touched on and and also amongst all that you know hse requirements are still something that they need to 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 be enforced at a high standard maybe 50 years ago you know getting injured in the oil field was something that was people were proud of but but today that's that's unacceptable so you know while while companies are shifting to you know to be more um conscious about how they're operating and and the impact that they're having on, on the environment, these underlying issues still you know, need to be focused on. You know, it's, it's so easy to kind of lose sight of what's already been achieved, but also taking that and then adopting another layer for how can we advance our, you know, our
0: operations in, in, in a safe manner as well. Do you think any of what we've talked about so far, does that vary at all for service companies versus operators? I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit broadly we did mm-hmm. focus a little bit on North America with fracking, but I mean, to get a little bit more specific and doing a little bit of delineation, do you think any of these considerations vary materially depending on what side you're looking on here?
1: I think it's a very sort of interesting dynamic, right? Because operators and, and all field service companies have always had this sort of interdependency throughout the decades. I mean, service companies have always been there to to, to facilitate the, the technological aspects of, you know, uh, well construction and developing an oil field. And so operators have, have sort of always leveraged that. And and it's no different today. I mean, you're starting to see that service companies are rebranding themselves as energy technology players. They're no longer just service companies that, you know, they've been developing technologies for years. But how the application of these technologies are seeing a new a sort of a, a, a new adoption, and and service companies are realizing, okay, you know, there's a lot more interest in developing uh, non-greenhouse gas fuels, but the existing technology like portfolios that we have can actually work to developing these new fuel sources. I mean, if you look at, for example, carbon, you know, CCUS uh, so carbon storage, this requires drilling an injection well, you know, using uh, OCTG materials, using um, rigs to drill, you know, to bore the holes. and you know, you're using uh, compressor technologies, and it's no different to to some of the equipment and technologies that are being used to extract oil and gas, and and process it. And so, service companies are starting to realize, like, we can kind of reverse engineer things using the existing sort of blueprints we have, to then okay accommodate for. If, if you want to produce, for example, blue hydrogen, you know, that's derived from natural gas, but that still does emit greenhouse gases. So what do we do with those greenhouse gases? Well, one alternative is we basically store that, you know, capture that green, uh, carbon dioxide and then store it, you know, in in empty sort of reservoirs, uh, whether that's offshore, onshore. Um, there's a, a whole host of opportunities there. So. I still believe that operators are going to drive the agenda, but service companies are going to be the enablers. And this relationship will only strengthen with further collaborations. I think, you know, you're starting to see a lot more operators willing to absorb the cost. You know, it's because these are very expensive endeavors. You know, service companies right now are are coming off the back of uh, a tremendous, you know, distressing time, uh, you know, where their revenues have been slashed, their R&D budgets have been trimmed. To, to kind of resize and retool for for a smaller, leaner sort of upstream environment. So they need the support and the, and and you know the underpinning kind of uh, financial backing from operators, you know, to be able to to achieve these kind of new new kind of um, technological advancements. Otherwise, I think you're going to see uh, a severe kind of hindrance in 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 achieving certain targets you know like if people want to remove like 800 million tons of carbon in the next 10 years you know we need to start now you know service companies and operators need to start collaborating now to developing you know these technologies such as uh you know hydrogen electrolyzers you know uh electro you know on a large industrial scale you know you need potentially what 70 gigawatts of capacity in the next five to ten years to be able to to facilitate you know, the production of of green hydrogen, potentially.
0: So all of these things that Prash is is touching on, we obviously have kind of dedicated teams that we're we're sourcing this research from. So without wanting to step on their toes, if anyone in the audience has questions, we will definitely uh, get them to the right right person. But I think Prash brings up an important point here. I mean, I think we have to be realistic in the sense that individuals within service companies and operators all want to do the right thing. I mean, I know, you know, you and I know each other We try and do the best we can at work. We want to be good stewards of the environment, our colleagues on the technical side that we know in the industry as well. But on the scale of these companies, it becomes very much a bottom line consideration because like you said, there's costs to doing this. And so if we sort of flip it to a more pragmatic way of looking at things, the operators will ask for these services. The service companies, if they kind of run the cost benefit, may think that, hey, we can make up for some of this lost revenue by going down some of these avenues that you mentioned. So I was doing some research uh, for a report a few weeks ago and it was mentioned to me uh, that something like half of all ROV work right now in the North Sea is for offshore wind, because that's where where Mm -hmm. the work is, right? And I think that you hear, taking it back to the electric fracturing that you talked about, there are some established pumping companies that I understand have said, well, we don't want to get into e fracking because that's very expensive for us to you know rework our fleets and get into it. But again, what's the cost of not doing that? You might just get left behind, right? So I think that there's the altruism on the individual level, but I think if you look at kind of the cost benefit, it might turn out that decarbonization makes business sense once you get over that initial investment hurdle. I mean, does does that sound about right to you?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think you make a very interesting point there. You know, there are there is that argument that's being generated by serious companies saying, you know, oh, look, the cost benefits just don't make sense right now, which is a fair enough statement. But I think what we need to understand is that there's a cyclical nature in which equipment, for example, needs, you know, has a certain lifespan. And will eventually need to be replaced. So that that existing sort of capex will, you know, what service companies need to make a decision: like, do we want to just continue investing in our traditional fleets, diesel-powered fleets, or do we start realizing, okay, there's a bit of a demand out there for more less carbon-intensive equipment? Maybe we should just take that capex and invest it in more uh, electric fracturing or grid-powered, you know, fracturing fleets. And and ultimately that decision will be driven by the customer demand. You know, I think ultimately, you know, service companies are at the mercy of operators. And if operators demand it, you know, service companies have to oblige. You know, there's there's no ifs or buts about it. So I, I think I think what we're seeing is a bit more of an upcycle in the adoption of of more, you know, less carbon intensive technologies. And and that will drive the decarbonization element within the oil field. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's something that I think it w- there's going to be at least a three to five year transition period, um, especially since we're coming off from a bit of an industry downturn where, you know, players are hurting, people are financially hemorrhaging. Um, so they need to stabilize their finances before, you know, I think seeing the bigger picture. And and, and so yeah, I think there's a there's a few distractions right now within the industry and people are not quite seeing the bigger picture but i think i think once we come out of kind of the smoke uh we're going to see a huge upsurge in the way people you know start operating in 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 sort of the different di- demand dynamics and on the types of equipment that people want you know they want more efficient equipment so you know th- the older equipment already you know if it was developed 5 years ago then it might not be something that service companies can use anymore because they just don't meet you know, client or customer expectations. So you're going to see a huge, you know, attrition and rationalization in, in the traditional kind of fleets, you know, that don't adopt more electric powered means of, of, of operating. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the bigger service companies have already been working on, on these kind of new technologies over the last five, six years. But, you know, I think the uptake is starting, you're starting
0: to see an increase in uptake of, of these technologies the five-year, so the the five-year uh, horizon you mentioned is interesting, and you know I, I apologize if I'm misattributing the quote. Uh, someone you know out there can correct me, but just off the top of my head, I think it was Bill Gates that said people tend to overestimate something like 30 or 40 years in the future, the progress that gets made in that time, but they underestimate the the five years that are in front yeah. of them, right? So
1: yeah.
0: you know, if if it's sort of like if you um, put yourself back, I don't know, in 2002. And you thought, well, in, you know, 2040, we're going to have flying cars and, you know, computer chips in our brains. Well, we're not there Mm -hmm. yet, but we did get the iPhone in 2007, and that was kind of a a huge step change, right? That was a a, a, a huge, huge leap in progress, right? So certainly for upstream, it could be that in 2025, we see a landscape that looks very different uh, Mm -hmm. than what we're seeing now. And maybe something that actually looks more like what we think 2040 or 2050 would look like because of that. You know, people tend to yeah, they tend to uh, underestimate the, the five year timeline. So, so it's an interesting assessment that you put. You know, one thing that I do want to to talk about because we we've, we've covered uh, you know some of the the, the drivers of uh, decarbonization. You've mentioned some of the technologies, digitalization,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, e-fracking. The, the the group that we're in is cost and technology, but really what we're focusing on is supply chain. So before yeah. we wrap up, would you mind maybe again talking broadly about what are the supply chain specifically supply chain specific implications for both operators and service companies uh, of working some of these new technologies and best practices in
1: yeah i mean I mean like I already kind of mentioned you know suppliers are facing hard times you know they're battling tight margins um, you know they you know there's this huge sort of pressure on them to to cut their their costs to to sort of get in alignment with the pricing situation at the moment, you know, so there will be sort of clear winners and losers, you know, you're going to see the kind of rationalization of suppliers. But the way that suppliers can offset these kind of downsides is by adapting digitalization, um, you know, and, and additive manufacturing, you know, these are sort of new kind of best practices that are being touted as being able to save manufacturers and suppliers a lot of money. Otherwise, you, you're just going to see companies just fade away. You know, if, if you don't adapt, They're just going to go extinct. So I think in the future, you're going to see less sort of players in the market. You know, there's going to be reduced choices, maybe in in the short term. But that you might see an uptick later on in the decade. So right now, you you know, there's already a supply overhang. You know, Um, companies are are basically cannibalizing equipment so that, you know, they can increase their pricing. Otherwise, they're just not going to be able to to survive the next few years, Um, especially, you know, that there are other elements of their costs increasing, you know, labor costs. I mean, we've seen sort of huge shift in the labor market within the oil and gas industry, you know, where people have left. And then when activity eventually picks up to a more stabilized level, you're going to see a shortage. And so service companies and suppliers are going to face you know serious labor challenges um so you know those costs are potentially going to go up so these sort of factors are something that you know people uh, operators are keeping in mind and you know to be able to to address those situations is is going to involve people really enhancing their logistics, you know, and reducing costs, Um, maybe, you know, like I mentioned about additive sort of manufacturing, um, that's something that maybe can be brought closer to locations, you know, uh, to where the activity is actually occurring. So that will reduce logistics, but then that will also reduce, you know, uh, carbon emissions, you know, because you're not relying on huge freight services or, you know, delivery services of, of, of parts and whatnot, uh, over long distances anymore you know. so all of these factors are actually really playing in, in into the current you know mirroring the trends that are happening you know you know like people are demanding decarbonization of, of their operations and and these are ways that that's going to happen eventually over time
0: yeah it sounds like sh- short term pain in in logistics and labor and costs but yeah. with the hope obviously of long term gain of more efficiencies and And less carbon out of the supply chain and out of operations as well yeah um great well so prosh we have i think run out of time in terms of the the material that we're going to talk about but uh for the audience out there uh i'd like to try something new so i listen to quite a few podcasts in my spare time and i'm going to rip off a final segment from one of them so it's called uh, Les habia it's a french podcast but in order to i guess end on kind of a fun note And uh, in order for me to get to know my guests better and for the audience to get to know our experts better, uh, I've got three questions I'm going to ask Prash, and then I'll ask those to every subsequent guest that's on Upstream and Perspective. So Prash, I will be upfront. I did give you a little bit of time, so I don't think this is gonna, I did give you a little bit of time upfront to think about these. So not quite spontaneous, but let's start with the first question. So what are your three essentials that you you have to have in life? I mean, what are the three things that every day kind of keep you going and, and make you happy?
1: Oh, mate, um, a bear at the end of the day. (laughs) Um,
0: um,
1: I mean, I, I
0: suppose like, you know, we we
1: live in such a technologically oriented world, you know, where we're just constantly sort of fixated with our phones or our, our, you know, Apple watches. And, um, but, um, I think for, for me, I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite minimalist in a sense, you know, I don't like, having you know owning a lot of possessions um quite simple in that way Mm. but um you know for me you know i I like collecting beanies and hats so during the winter i mean i'm always i'm always wearing a beanie and um occasionally i get chastised for wearing a beanie during you know when it's 40 degree weather in the summer but uh that's just that's just how i like to roll it's an essential it's an
0: essential essential,
1: um you know but um i I do collect the um, ray-bans sunglasses so that's you know something that I'm very passionate about. But another essential I think I, th- I think it's just being um quite uh humble and just being you know like being for you know for everything that you have and and you know and just being grateful uh given there's so much uh distress going on in the world you know but
0: um Very good. I yeah. like that. So a beer uh some Fashion accessories, which we should talk about more because I kind of share those essentials and a sense of gratitude. That's a good one. I like that. All right. uh, Next question. So we talked a little bit about kind of traveling in our minds at the beginning of the show. But what is a place that, you know, prior to, uh, you know, everything that's happened and certainly after we're all through this, what is is your happy place? Like, where would we find you uh, in your best mood uh, when this is all over?
1: Oh uh, mate, you know. Besides from wanting to desperately be home in Australia, um, I think you know I I I enjoy travelling a lot. You know, I I get major wanderlust on a daily basis. You know, I'm I'm looking at people's Instagrams and I'm like, oh, I just wish I was there. You know, and um, uh, but there's one particular you know country I really want to visit is is Iceland. You know, it's been on the agenda for years, but just never had the opportunity. Um. I think just, you know, the visceral landscapes and, and i listen to a lot of Icelandic musicians and their music conveys that the emotions and and just how sort of tran- tranquil Iceland looks. And uh, so, yeah, definitely. And you know, I was telling telling my wife, you know, as soon as uh, all these travel bans are lifted, uh,
0: we're booking a flight to Iceland. Going yeah, to Iceland. Good. Fantastic. All right. Last question, which is going to be something hopefully that the audience can uh can share in with you, but what is one piece of content you have consumed recently that you'd like to put out there? So, book, podcast, movie, right. an- anything. Wow. What's the, what's something you've really enjoyed uh, in your in your personal time?
1: Oh, there's just too many to choose from, David. I mean, because I mean, this last few months, it's all I've been doing, isn't it? Exploring new sort of content and <laughs> sure. Um, in my in my spare time, but I think I think one particular podcast that I've been obsessed with is one called Song Exploder um if anyone's come across it on spotify what what it essentially is is um each episode is is dedicated to one sort of iconic song that's you know uh, been you know it could be could have been written four years ago it could have been written 10 years ago but um you know they basically invite the artists the musicians the producers who worked on the track to come and basically dissect the entire song down to its bare bones and it's so fascinating hearing uh these creative minds you know discussing you know how they 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 created something from just you know like a simple melody to to its final product and and um i mean i i i'm i'm musically inclined you know i'm very i'm i'm, I'm a musician myself and so it's something that um i'm very um very interested in in understanding the songwriting process production qualities and and everything so it inspires me a lot you know <laughs> so one awesome. day one day yeah, one oh, day composed my own. <laughs>
0: that's awesome. So, so real quick, uh, part B to this. What what was the favorite story or what was the favorite uh, song and story behind the song that you that you've listened
1: oh, to so far? Oh, um, I think uh, that there was an episode on on, on uh, Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant. Okay. Featured, um, and he was talking about Stairway to he- Heaven. <laughs> Okay. Very um good. Very good. I mean I've heard a lot of a lot of stories regarding, you know, the 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 genesis of that song. Um but just hearing it from Robert Plant talking about it, you know, how they were in this house, you know, it was just Jimmy Page and him and and then in front of a fire and, and it just the song just morphed, you know. It just was there then and there it was birthed, you know, and it's just fascinating listening to him even even talking about it like 40, 40 50 years later. It just seems so ingrained, and you know, and fresh in his mind. Um, so it was great.
0: Such a classic, although if you're a guitar yeah. player, you know you're forbidden from playing that in any guitar. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, That's but, always, That's always always the joke. But uh, no, that's that's excellent. <laughs> um, great. So I think just to 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 wrap things up, bring these bring this back to the original topic of the show. So we've talked about decarbonization being a top priority for operators and service companies. Uh, the hypothesis that Prospect Board is that uh, operators will be kind of leading the way, but this presents an opportunity for service companies to maybe make up some of the revenues that they've lost in their legacy oil and gas portfolios. Uh, we've also covered some of the technologies that might enable this decarbonization uh, as well as the costs of not adopting them, right? Because long term, uh, if, if we don't go down this or if operators and service companies don't go down this path, um, they may end up not having a place in the new upstream landscape and uh, finally, uh, of course, we said that there are increased uh, costs uh, and logistics considerations in the short term, but in the long term, again, the idea is getting to this new upstream landscape. And uh, we've also learned that if you would like to know how to put together an outfit, uh, Prash is the guy <laughs> that you want to call. So, Prash, uh, thanks so much for your time on the, sh- on the show. It was a great catching up with you. And uh, for all the audience out there that uh, is listening to us, we do hope that you're staying productive, but uh, especially that you're staying well and healthy. And as usual, if you have any questions about any of the material on the show, uh, you can feel a drop me or Prash your line. We'll have our contact information in the show notes. And uh, with that, we look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of Upstream in Perspective. Thanks so much, Prash. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for that, David. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energyblog also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarketcom forward slash energy.